Since 1994, the auto industry has enjoyed the fruits of the North American Free Trade Agreement. But now, the Trump administration is talking about changing the treaty. Is that the right move? And who will benefit? We talk NAFTA, coming up next on AutoLine This Week. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine This Week. Topic for today's show is about NAFTA. That's because we've got a guy here who literally wrote the book on NAFTA, and it's called Understanding the North American Free Trade Agreement. It was written by Les Glick, who's with the legal firm Butzel Long. And Les, it's great to have you on the Good, show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Also joining us today are Jamie Butters, a reporter with Bloomberg News, and Daniel Howes, a columnist with the Detroit News. And great to have the both of you guys here, too. My pleasure. Les, let's jump into it. There's so much talk about NAFTA right now. The Trump administration wants to renegotiate it. You're somebody who was involved with this treaty since the very beginning, 25 years ago. What do you think? Do we really need to renegotiate NAFTA? Well, uh, the alternative was revoking it and the U.S. withdrawing, so I think renegotiating is the better of the two alternatives. Uh, President Trump made this a big issue in the campaign that he wanted to withdraw from NAFTA, which mm -hmm. the U.S. can do with six months' notice. And we came very close to doing that. Uh, there was rumors that it would happen, and then there was calls, late-night calls from the Mexican president and the uh, uh, Prime Minister of Mexico, and then the next day, President Trump announced we're going to renegotiate. So that's the posture that we're in, renegotiating, it means different things to different people. And uh, there's still veiled threats that I hear that the U.S. might withdraw if the renegotiations don't go well. But I think from my perspective, representing people in the auto industry, we all wanted to succeed, that we think NAFTA has been a success, that maybe it needs to be updated and maybe uh, tweaked a little but certainly not uh, withdrawn from NAFTA. What would be at stake if there was a withdrawal? I mean, we've heard talk, the president has talked about a, a big border tax, uh, but the relations would still be constrained by the, w, the World Trade Organization, right? I mean, what, what actually well, could he do? The, the, the tariffs would go back to the pre-NAFTA tariff rates. Now, the U.S. tariffs are bound under the World Trade Organization, so we couldn't really raise us too much. It's like 2.5% on autos. But the Mexicans are already very high, and they are not bound under the World Trade Organization. They could raise their tariffs as high as they want. What would, you, uh, what would you say the auto industry wants most out of this process? If they assume that it's going to go forward and there's not going to be a withdrawal, um, what do you think they want most out of it? Certainty, predictability, continue the supply chains. <clears throat> One of the hot issues in the renegotiation are the rules of origin. That determines who can get the NAFTA benefits of the duty-free treatment. Under the existing NAFTA, there's a special regional value content for automotive at 62.5%. Uh, most of the people in the automotive industry are happy with this. During the TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership Negotiations, which President Trump withdrew from, that level went down to about 30 or 40 percent, which tended to benefit the Japanese and maybe allow non-North American parts to be getting into more automobiles. And um, there's some concern that we might go back to the TPP, but I think most of the people in the auto industry and auto parts are happy with the existing 62.5 percent and would like to keep it. Some would like to raise it, 
but I've heard from some people in the auto industry that any change of it could affect existing supply chains because they're very uh, well managed with the just-in-time delivery. And <clears throat> there's one risky part about this that was in the president's uh, this summary of objectives that they had, 17 pages that they announced. And there's some language in there that indicates that in addition to the NAFTA rule of origin, which can be a conglomerate from all three countries together, that there could be a separate American rule of origin in addition. And some people are very concerned about that. Les, we talk about the automotive industry wants this or that. Do you see a difference between what the car companies want and what the supplier industry wants? No, I think this is one area where everybody's in agreement, you know, that NAFTA has been good. I might mention, I think uh, Dan wrote about this in one of your newspaper articles, this independent group called Center for Automotive Research, CAR, mm -hmm. did a briefing paper on the potential consequences of withdrawal from NAFTA. And their conclusion was that it would be a disaster for the automotive industry. For the U.S. automotive industry. For the U.S. Industry. automotive industry, it would affect their competitiveness, it would result in a net loss of jobs. And I don't want to go into too many numbers, but I'd be glad to provide this to anybody if you email me, glick at butzel.com. It's a great thing to read. It's independent. It's not issued by any government agency. And it, it kind of rebuts a lot of the government positions that NAFTA has been a failure. Is NAFTA getting blamed unfairly for a lot of the contraction and change in the auto industry? I, I remember writing, and maybe it was in that piece at one point, about that what people forget is that what co this period of co coincided with the slow decline, a continuing decline, and implosion of the Detroit auto industry. Right. And a lot of that had nothing to do with trade. It had right. to do with the products they were making. It had to do with their debt. It had to do with their manufacturing. Stuff you've talked about many, many, many times, and Jamie's written about it as well. Are they, is this really answering a question that no one's asking except maybe a presidential candidate? Well, a lot of these jobs were going to be lost to automation and globalization, right. not specifically to Mexico. And a couple of these studies, there was one at the Wharton School, and they've all said if we didn't lose these jobs to Mexico, they probably would have gone to China or Vietnam. And at least with Mexico, uh, instead of calling it offshoring, it's sort of nearshoring. They're our neighbor. And 40%, 40 cents of every dollar from Mexico is U.S. input. So it's our own investment that's coming back. And plus, in the border areas, the Mexican companies, I represent some in the border areas. They buy a lot of their supplies in Texas and in the border. So better to have these uh, jobs in Mexico than in China. I think most people feel that way. Les, one of the... And Canada, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we've read, all read about, you know, that, that we weren't contemplating in 1993, uh, you know, well, for a while we were calling e-commerce. I think we now just call it commerce. Uh, but, you know, the digital digital transactions and things that didn't exist before. Does that really affect the auto industry's stake or how does there's some technology things that maybe need to yeah, be addressed? I, right? I think that's one of the good parts of, of uh, this, what they call NAFTA 2.0, is to deal with digital trade. That didn't exist 23 years ago, so it's something to be updated. It's kind of a positive thing. Let's add things that didn't exist then. Uh, internet sales and things like that. Mm. So, yeah, that's one of the good parts of, of NAFTA. And there's some other parts of it that are, you know, for example, harmonizing standards and using the U.S. automotive safety standards, making that the standard mm. that would benefit the auto industry. Mm -hmm. Talk about harmonization, yeah. though. Let's look at the labor side because there's a huge disparity between Mexican wages and U.S. and Canadian wages. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
What do you think is going to be done, if anything, maybe to bring Mexican wages up to put them not on parity with the rest of North America, but far above what they are at right now? I think that's one of the most sensitive issues in the negotiations. If you recall, in the original NAFTA, after it was passed by Congress, it wasn't sure uh, where it was going to go, and they added this labor side agreement, which is not part of the original NAFTA. Now they want to make this side agreement part of NAFTA and upgrade it with you know, stricter labor standards, restrictions on child labor and on uh, forced labor. The wage issue is not specifically in this uh, document, but a lot of people think that that could be you know, something. The AFL-CIO and the UAW all testified at these hearings. They would like to see raising the wage level in Mexico uh, and improving the benefits to be equal to the U.S. How might they do that? Because, Jamie, I think you guys at Bloomberg were the ones who broke the story. Uh-huh. BMW is paying its workers in Mexico in its brand new plant that just opened a dollar ten an hour, uh-huh. which is shockingly low. Right. The cars they're making are going to sell for forty-five to fifty thousand dollars. I cannot believe BMW got away or is getting away with paying its workers so little money. Their skilled tradespeople are making two dollars and fifty cents uh-huh. an hour. Uh-huh. How on earth are we going to affect a trade policy that brings those wages up to something that's more than? just these menial levels. Yeah, I don't think that can happen. Of course, a dollar ten an hour goes a lot further in Mexico than it does here with the yeah, cost yeah, of yeah. living. I don't buy that. Others uh, have said that's about $2,500 a year yeah. in a country that has a per capita income of about $18,000. Right, right. So I, I, I cannot understand why BMW would even agree to this or how it can get away with it. And could a new NAFTA agreement address that issue? Well, you know, I don't know if I have a complete answer to that, but the people that have looked at this have said that even though you are paying less in Mexico, it's supporting higher paying jobs in the U.S. in the automotive industry. Because it's made the automotive industry more competitive, because you've got that guy in Mexico, maybe he's making $1.50 an hour, there's more engineers being hired back here to support the growth of the company. So, uh, but I don't ever see the Mexican wages coming up to the U.S. level. I think that's aspiration. I don't Never going to happen. Uh, all they have to do is get up to their own yeah. per capita yeah. income level, and I think everybody might be happy yeah. at that. Yeah. And there's something to be said when the Mexican level of uh, income raises and they buy more cars mm-hmm. and more U.S. exports. You know, both so, both uh, Mexico and Canada have, uh, before the pre- I think after the president was elected and before he was inaugurated, said, "Okay, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll negotiate." I mean, I don't renegotiate. I don't think they had much choice, but what do you think um, they're looking to get out of this process? They're dealing with a guy who, who <laughs> is negotiating a treaty by Twitter, uh, which you weren't dealing with 23 years ago, um, and he's also sending a lot of conflicting signals, whether it's talking about the Mexicans are going to build the wall and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. What do you, what, what would be the top priorities, you think, for the Mexicans and also the Canadians in this process. Well, you know, I've, I've participated in some different groups, you know, like National Association of Manufacturers and trade groups. The, the theme seems to be do no harm. You know, mm-hmm. let's leave NAFTA. It's got a lot of good benefits. Let's improve it and tweak it, but let's not change it. Let's not do away with the fundamental duty-free treatment and things like that. It can be improved. But there are some people that want to change it. Um, there are some issues about... Um, well, one of, the, one of the hot issues that I might mention is this uh, dispute settlement 
Right now we have this investor state dispute settlement where if a U.S. company goes to Mexico and something happens that maybe their property is taken through some local regulation, they don't have to go to a Mexican court. They can go to an arbitration panel that includes a Mexican, American, and Canadian. Companies like that. They don't have to be in a local court. This is not something that's currently being uh, proposed in the administration's agenda necessarily that they're going to continue. So some people are kind of nervous about that. Well, hasn't the, the trade representative Lighthizer in some commentary at the beginning of this process talked about how that offended him? Yeah. That, can, that uh, there would be two foreign arbitrators who would be making a decision for an, on an American company? Some people say it creates a sort of a super government that overrides local law. But looking at this other hand, if you're a U.S. company going down to Mexico and the Mexican elections are coming up, one of the candidates, uh, Lopez Obrador, has talked about things that make people nervous, maybe nationalizing things. So the U.S. companies like this protection of the investor state. Uh, it's surprising that the Trump administration is not supporting it. Because it's usually the public interest groups, the Ralph Nader groups that are against it, because they say, well, you're taking power away from the government and overriding it and everything. So it, it's a controversial issue, the investor state. Les, you yeah. touched earlier on the rules of origin, and we talked some about how you know, the world has changed since the early 90s. And again, we didn't have the touch screens and all the, all the computing power in our cars then. And I, it's, I, my understanding is it's basically like a big loophole. That, that new technology that's been added isn't counted toward the 62.5%. Is that right? And, and how, is that, how do you think that's going to get resolved? Well, the existing rules are kind of complicated for the rules of origin. You know, they have this uh, tracing rule and everything. In fact, a lot of people like to see the simplify the rules of origin. But there's some things that you have to have included because they're not made in the U.S., and that's a lot of these electronic parts. And they have a de minimis provision where if something is not NAFTA made, up to 7% can come from a foreign country. Some people want to raise that to 10%. So I think that they have, have other, to happen because the electronics just aren't available. Right. Could it lead yeah. to other shifts in, uh, in the supply chain where maybe some of the low-value parts that are being sourced from North Africa and Southeast Asia could then come to, say, Mexico uh, and bring more jobs to North America, less uh, economic impetus for people to cross the border? Yeah, well, that, that's possible, yeah. And, um, uh, you know, you still have... You know, 62% leaves a lot of room for some foreign content. Mm -hmm. Les, the Secretary of Commerce, of course, is Wilbur Ross, who has significant investments in the automotive industry. I don't know for a fact. I assume maybe they're in trust or something like that while he serves in the government. Does this put him in a conflict of interest? Is, what's your sense of how he might negotiate having had such significant investment in Mexico? Well, firstly... You know, and, and this changes a lot with each administration, but it doesn't seem like the Commerce Department is taking the lead role in this NAFTA negotiation. It's mostly the U.S. Trade Representative. They didn't have one until May 15th, and now he's been in office. Lighthizer is taking the lead. doesn't look like the State Department's going to have a big role. In the past, you know, when you had Henry Kissinger, other people, the State Department. So it changes who's kind of the person with the biggest influence. But I do feel that Wilbur Ross is a pro-NAFTA because of his business experience and that they support NAFTA. And it's probably helpful to have him there. Um, the real naysayers on NAFTA were uh, 
uh, Navarro, who is, uh, you know, still in the cabinet mm -hmm. and is sort of an anti-NAFTA uh, guy. But um, I think overall, most of the people in the cabinet are pro-NAFTA. Mm -hmm. Which raises the question. You have the, Mexican, the Mexicans who say they really don't want to change a lot. Yeah. The Canadians who say they don't want to change a lot. Suppliers who say they don't want to change a lot. Uh, automakers who say they don't want to change a lot. And half of the cabinet that says they don't want to change a lot. So why are we going through this process? It's a good question. Uh, I think, honestly, if President Trump was left on his own, he might have just withdrawn from NAFTA like he'd withdraw from TPP. But I think he got the message when he tried to withdraw from people like Steve Cohn and Wall Street that this would be a disaster for the stock market, the Mexican peso. So he's trying to do his best to, um, I think, uh, fulfill his promises uh, and maybe improve on improving NAFTA from his viewpoint, which would be creating more American jobs. And then other people want to improve it in other ways. So hopefully it'll work out that everybody will get a little of something, you know, well, and you that's hopefully. This is, does this end up being kind of a big, fat nothing burger well, at the end of the day? I've heard some people say that because of this expedited timetable, mm -hmm. because it's got to be finished before the Mexican elections, that don't expect too much, that maybe it might just be minor tweaks. That could very well happen just because of the time pressure. And maybe that's good. I don't think there's any question. I read something recently of the president, um, an insider account um, of him telling Gary Cohn and some of other economic advisors, I want tariffs. Yeah. Bring me tariffs. That he just wants to be able to show that he demonstrate that he's making good on his promises. Yeah. It, you don't get the impression that he's thinking through some of the implications of this until maybe some of his advisors bring him up short on it a little yeah. bit. Well, I don't think he's going to raise tariffs. I think that's pretty much agreed. There's not going to be any increase in tariffs. But you can have the same effect if he fools around with the rules of origin. Um, there's one provision that's now in NAFTA on government procurement that makes an exception for NAFTA and Buy American. Uh, some people are concerned that they might change that and make it harder for NAFTA uh, content goods to be sold to U.S. government and to state and local governments. So. But I don't see any real, I think the, the idea of raising tariffs is just out of the question. I think the Mexicans would, would walk out. And I've heard people from Mexico say, you know, we're, you know, we're talking with China, we're talking with Argentina and Brazil about supplying us with corn. Um, they're very proud people. I, I don't think they're gonna stand for any tariff increase. You know, I think that they would, withdraw, would walk out. Les, what's your sense of what uh, the Canadians want? As you know, the, the U.S. has uh, a little over a $60 billion trade deficit with, yeah. with Mexico. Canada has almost a $30 billion trade deficit. So it's half of the U.S., but their economy is about one-tenth of the U.S. So proportionately, they have a much higher trade deficit with Mexico uh -huh. than the U.S. does. Uh, when President Trump announced that he wanted to renegotiate NAFTA as president, the very next day, uh, Pierre Trudeau, or not Pierre, uh, Justin Trudeau uh, jumped right up and said, I want to renegotiate too. What do you think Canada wants out of this? I think you can summarize it in one word, dairy. That's the hot issue with Canada. They are concerned about their protecting their dairy industry. It was a big issue for them in TPP, and it's a big issue for them in, uh, uh, in NAFTA, you know, more than anything.
So milk and cheese yeah, is what exactly. it's really about. Isn't timber also an issue? Timber too, yeah. yeah. There's been a lot of dumping cases on this software lumber. Uh, there's some talk about talking about dumping in, in the NAFTA. Usually it's not included, but there's some talk about including it and also trade remedies. There, uh, there's some beefing up of trade remedies. For example, it's kind of a technical thing, but the U.S. can bring a safeguards case a worldwide case if they show that imports are increasing and causing material injury. But under NAFTA, Canada and Mexico are excluded. And like in the big steel cases, they got a free pass. Now they want to change it that doesn't exist anymore. So if there's a new safeguards case, Canada and Mexico are included. That's going to be controversial. So. One of the things, and like you said, I mean, it's it's, it's not clear how much can actually be done by, say, early 2018 before the next rounds of Mexican and congressional elections. But one of the things that's also been brought up on the table is currency manipulation. Yes. Uh, is that really even an issue with Canada and Mexico, or is that just about setting a precedent for what President Trump and the U.S. would like to see in future uh, trade deals? Yeah, exactly right. Currency is the, is the last thing, number 17 page on 17 pages here. There isn't any real proof of currency manipulation, but I think you've hit the point. They want to use this as a precedent when they go but to renegotiate the Korean agreement and other agreements that we put it in NAFTA, so we'll put it in this. You know, I've had ex ranking executives from car companies tell me exactly that point, make the point. Canadians and Mexicans are not the issue, but we want to see a precedent, so down the road, it can be then used in mostly Korean, Japanese, exactly. other kinds of deals. Les, I want to come back to the labor issue again. This is an area, renegotiating NAFTA, where the United Auto Workers, the UAW union, is right on board with Trump. They love this thing. Uh -huh. But what's your sense? Is the UAW really going to link arms with the, the Trump administration? Have you seen any indication of that? Well, they testified at the hearings, and they were largely in support of the, the Trump agenda. They like the fact that they, the labor part of it is being elevated to part of the agreement from a side agreement and going to be fully enforceable. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, I, I think labor, you know, they have slightly different uh, objectives, but all in all, I think they're supporting what the uh, Trump agenda is. Mm -hmm. And does that also include... How much does that also include? You mentioned, touched on the safety, but the environmental regulations in Mexico, which I think the, certainly the impression up here is that they're, they're not nearly as strict as, yeah. as U.S. companies face. The environmental agreement is also a side agreement now. They want to upgrade it to a full agreement. And I have to say, you know, uh, I represent a lot of people that have plants in Mexico, and I've been in those plants. Mm -hmm. And they're usually, you can't tell the difference from going to a plant here in Michigan. They're clean, they're modern, they're safe. These companies don't want to take a chance on having injuries and having substandard. So uh, the U.S. companies and foreign auto companies that have plants in Mexico, usually they're up to the same standards as the U.S. Mm -hmm. Although sometimes those aren't as good as <laughs> <laughs> we'd like them to right. be. Well, you know, it, it all depends, too. Uh, if you go into these plants, you're, you're absolutely right. They're gleaming. They're modern. But and it's a better job for the Mexicans than they might get in a local company. No question about it. No question yeah. about it. Uh, and yet, uh, emissions from the paint shop and the like, uh, effluent and runoff from mm -hmm. the plants, uh, the, the, uh, the standards in Mexico are lower. Mm -hmm. The international companies do like to hold themselves to a higher standard. I think it's when you get into the lower tiers of yeah. suppliers where you can find real abuses. 
Are there examples of trade agreements that have raised labor standards in or environmental standards, uh, you know, whether it's in Europe or in, in, the, the United States has deals with it? Yeah. It seems to me that that can be something that really impinges on sovereignty and can yeah. be perceived as impinging on sovereignty. Yeah, not that I know of. But, no. not, not with the U.S. as a party, anyway. Mm -hmm. So what's your sense, Les? Are you going to get a new uh, trade agreement out of this effort, or is one of the parties going to say, that's it, I'm walking? Well, uh, you know, I went to a briefing with some people from the U.S. Trade Representative just this week, and they're pretty positive. They've actually tabled eight written texts already. And, uh, you know, it's only been one round of negotiations. Uh, I mean, there's really uh, the working, the next round is in Mexico. They're working over Labor Day weekend. So uh, it seems like everybody is motivated to, to have some results, you know. Uh, there are going to be a few sticky issues, but there'll be a lot of them that are probably more easily agreed to. And when do you think this might get wrapped up? Um, they're talking about before the end of the year. I don't think that's probably going to happen. Maybe early next year. Probably the best, you know, aspiration. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of wrapping up, we're going to have to wrap up this show at this moment. I, I hope you all have enjoyed this. And uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Les has written a book called Understanding the North American Free Trade Agreement. If you'd like to know more about NAFTA, I'm sure everything that you could possibly want to know is in this book. Although I got to tell you, it's pretty technical because this is a, a very technical agreement. But uh, you can find out more information, I'm sure, online. Is there, there something about the book? And if not, you can always go to our website. We'll have copies there at www.autoline.tv. But we'll have that there. And uh, okay. i got to uh, thank Les Glick from Butts Along coming on. I, I don't know if I've met anybody before that knows as much about a free trade agreement as you do, Les. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Pleasure to be here. And, of course, I want to thank my friends, uh, Jamie Butters, the reporter with uh, Bloomberg News, who joined us today, and Daniel Howes, columnist with the Detroit News. Great stuff there for anybody in the audience to look up and, and find out about them. But with that, we're wrapping up the show. I want to thank you for watching AutoLine this week.